I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Burnico. Matt, uh, it is St. Francis time all the time over here um, in my <laughs> apartment. Uh, I can't stop thinking about this uh, this weird Italian character, uh, this goofy guy. Ever since we started talking about him on the podcast, uh, I don't know, <laughs> a few months ago now, I feel like he keeps creeping in. And uh, I think uh, even though our listeners might be tired of St. Francis, I am really not. And with your uh, with your permission as my perennial co-host, uh, I'd like to talk about him again for a whole nother hour, but from a different a different angle. How does that sound? Yeah. St. Francis himself was not a fan of like uh, rules guiding uh, monastic life. And uh, in in a similar way, uh, I think that you don't even need to ask me permission. You can just do it. You just talk about <laughs> it. That's right. Well, I was trying to be humble in the true Franciscan way, um, <laughs> <laughs> humiliating myself before my superior. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we've been talking about St. Francis a lot on the show, and I do think that there is some kind of reason that he keeps coming up. You know, Matt and I have been talking about lots of other themes like degrowth and climate change and ecology and eco-socialism and all that stuff for a while and I think St. Francis is just a character that lends toward all of that. He is a, a person in Christian history who tries to bring those themes together in an interesting way. And you kind of can't, like, it's hard to run out of topics or people talking about Francis. And just a few weeks ago, we did this history of St. Francis looking at uh, post-Marxist thinkers and what they have to say about him. A while back, we did an episode on Francis and kind of what Marxists had to say. This week, though, we decided maybe we should stop uh, going outside the tradition and find somebody inside talking about St. Francis, in particular Leonardo Boff. Uh, Boff is a liberation theologian who you've probably heard about on the show in the past. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did an episode on Clodovis Boff, his brother, and uh, we'll probably talk more about him in this episode at some point as well. Leonardo Boff was a Franciscan himself, and in 1982, he's still alive, by the way, I just say was because he's not a, a priest anymore. He left the priesthood. But in 1982, he wrote a book called St. Francis, A Model for Human Liberation that picks up on some of the characteristics that Marxists kind of like about St. Francis, but it adds a lot more uh, spiritual content that's obviously missing in Marxist takes or is just not of interest to Marxist writers for understandable reasons, I guess. 
Um, Boff also wrote a few other books about St. Francis. He wrote an interesting book in the early 2000s called The Prayer of St. Francis, which is a commentary on that prayer. He wrote a book called Francis of Assisi and Francis of Rome, or maybe it's the other way around, but about St. Francis and Pope Francis. And uh, we talked about his book, The Cry of the Earth, The Cry of the Poor, a while back, where Francis is a big deal. So Francis is important to Boff. And we thought, you know, we were talking about St. Francis through all these other lenses. Why don't we just go to somebody who's actually uh, been a member of the community that St. Francis founded and see what uh, what they have to say about it. So uh, we read this great book, um, and uh, here we are to tell you all about it <laughs> for the next hour. <laughs> That's great. There's nothing you can do to escape but pause the podcast. And you wouldn't do that, so you're stuck with this. Um, right. <laughs> so again, the book is called St. Francis, A Model for Human Liberation. You can go to archive.org and look it up, and you can borrow the book there and read it on your computer. Or you can find the crustiest used bookstore, and hopefully they have a copy uh, of this great old Orbis book. It's uh, it's a cool <laughs> one, though, for sure. So in Boff's book on St. Francis, he makes the argument that St. Francis is a good model for the aims of liberation theology. So that, you know, uh, liberation theology, it's great. We love it. But if you want to be a person practicing liberation theology, you should think about St. Francis and how he approaches the world, I think, generally. And... It's a tough one. It's a it's a tough one for sure. There's a lot of, um, you know, like Francis is probably most associated with like voluntary poverty and renouncing private property and all that kind of stuff. But I think that just like the general comportment toward the world is actually even more difficult than, than those things. Francis offers a whole different way of thinking about enemies and <laughs> ecology, wolves, birds, all of it, man. <laughs> uh, it's tough. A lot of tough lessons in here that I think are really worthwhile, but... Um, definitely are hard for your brain to readjust to. But anyways, as Boff tells the the story, St. Francis is a type of revolutionary character. He's not a reformist. He's a revolutionary. Boff makes this claim um, really explicitly. And uh, he's a revolutionary because he has a utopian vision of what Christianity could look like. And he's trying to like lead people toward that particular vision uh, in, in, you know, um, in his evangelization towards, like, you know, regular people, uh, but also through, you know, like, other sort of more monastic types of people. Uh, Something I didn't know about St. Francis, actually, before I pick this up, is that for at least a part of the time that he was out and about in the world, he was not, like, he's you know, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't, like, a, you know, a person of the church. He was just, like, a layperson, just vibing out in the world. (laughs) Yeah, and, he was never a priest. He uh, yeah. he became a deacon, but well, you know that's debatable. But in the tradition, he becomes a deacon, but still never a priest. Yeah, I think that that part is like really interesting to me that uh, he's just a layperson, just like vibing and like taking up these uh, vows of poverty, and then it all gets sucked up into the church proper. Um, anyways, a pretty interesting thing. All that being said, though, in this episode, we're going to talk about Boff's take on Francis and figure out if St. Francis really is the model for Christians doing liberation theology. Um, I think that he is up front, but there's some pretty considerable tensions to think through as well. But we'll <laughs> we'll get to them all here in a little bit. Yeah, maybe one last uh, place setting bit here, too. I think it's really interesting that Boff is writing this uh, this pitch. He's a Franciscan writing about St. Francis. That part's not surprising. But liberation theology really was developed um, in a big way by a lot of members of religious orders, uh, people in religious communities. And in terms of some of the theological voices, you might think of people like Gustavo Gutierrez or Fray Beto. They're both Dominicans, for example, 
Or you could think of uh, Fernando Cardinal, Ernesto Cardinal's brother, who was a Jesuit, or people like Ignacio Iacuria, who was also a Jesuit, uh, John Sabrino's a Jesuit. So lots of different religious uh, folks. And there's something about religious communities, maybe we said this in a previous episode, but they kind of preserve the the community aspect of the church and what you could call a, a certain communist vision of the church. In the uh, Augustinian rule, for example, that you get sort of taken up again by uh, by Dominic in the Dominican rule, um, there is the, the sort of formula in Acts of um, not having possessions and sharing with people who have need and so on. That's like built into the rule of community life. So there's an interesting kind of thing going on there. And Boff is trying to make the pitch that Francis out of all these saints is the one who could, you know, be the, the model. And I think it's very funny because as far as I know, maybe it could be wrong, but I don't think uh, people like Gutierrez wrote a book about how, you know, St. Dominic should be the the model or like uh, A. Carrier wasn't suggesting that Ignatius should be the model or something. So maybe maybe uh, Boff just wins because he was the only religious willing to be like, actually, it was my saint that should be the model. Um, but I do think that he offers a pretty compelling case that there's something really interesting happening with St. Francis as a predecessor in medieval or late late medieval, early capitalist uh, Italy something that Francis is intuiting and, and doing that sort of has a resonance with what liberation theologians in Latin America are intuiting and doing. And like you said, Matt, there's some frictions there, but I think it's a, a pretty good pitch coming out of, you know, a person who's actually living in religious life. Totally. Um, and with Boff, we were talking about this before we got started. Some, um, Boff is not really like, uh, not the systemic thinker, like Clodovis Boff, his brother. He is definitely just a guy who's like kind of throwing stuff together. And if it works, it works. And uh, it's great. I'm here for it. I'm here for it because I think it works in this in this occasion. Um, all right. Franciscan vibe. Yeah, a very Franciscan vibe, I think. Uh, so before we get to talking about how Fran- St. Francis himself fits into, like, the the idea of liberation theology, uh, Boff takes some time and just describes what liberation theology is and, like, what it's after. Um, so uh, here, here it is. He thinks that liberation theology has two principal tasks. The first one is to... Point out the theological relevance of freedom movements. Historical liberation is never just historical. There is in it objectively grace or sin independent of the interests of the actors or ideological signs that they inspire. In other words, salvation and the kingdom of God are realized objectively within these processes. Great. And the second task of liberation theology, we'll talk about them both here in, in one second. <laughs> but the second task is that liberation, uh, liberation theology deals with the liberating aspects that are present in the gospel, in the life and practice of Jesus, and in the great tradition of the church. Faith is salvific only when it's translated into a practice of love. So here you go. The, the two pieces of liberation the- theology all boiled down, <laughs> if you had to, are that uh, there's something theologically relevant and... Um, and like a, a sort of like revelatory practice in historical movements of liberation, God's present in them is maybe the first thing. And the second is that like in the gospel, you'll find a like a liber in the gospel and in the tradition of the church, both those things, I guess, <laughs> need to go together. Uh, there's like an, an a liberating ethic that you can find. Um, and uh, one that I think has a lot to do with uh, Francis. Um, I don't know, Dean, you're the liberation theology guy. What do you think about these two, uh, <laughs> these two explanations? 
I think they're great. He's right. Uh, it's a, a good word. Um, there's something else that he sort of adds on to this, or maybe by way of clarifying the, the first point that really struck me, too, and that I made a note of in, in the book. Um, so when he's talking about how liberation theology tries to find the theological rele- relevance of those kind of liberation struggles, uh, he goes on to say, uh, the kingdom is made present and is anticipated to the degree to which these processes are ethically defensible. That is, they signify the creation of true and better meaning. This perspective allows the rereading of the liberation movements of past centuries and of the secular culture resulting from them is theologically relevant, although they have not been supported by the church, and although in some cases, like the Socialist and Workers' Revolution, they have taken a position contrary to Christianity. Grace and the kingdom do not find in the church exclusive mediators, but rather privileged ones on a sacramental order. And I think that is a really interesting point and maybe something that has attracted us to liberation theology on this podcast, that there is something about the willingness to affirm that even if a revolution takes, uh, it isn't just maybe unsupported by the church, but is even actively against it. There's still a kind of theological way of understanding the those liberation movements that tries to sort of not see liberation as the, you know, like something that Christians have a monopoly over or something, but it's something that all Christians should be interested in, whether it's sort of done in a Christian spirit or not. And that, I think, is a really lasting contribution of liberation theology to sort of knock down those walls of maybe hard divides between like there's secular liberation on the one hand and then there's kind of Christian faithfulness on the other Liberation theology is trying to create a theological way of reflecting on the huge human struggle for liberation, whether it looks Christian or not. And I think that that's a really uh, just a point worth making over and over, <laughs> right? Uh, that that Christians are able to engage liberation struggles and and metabolize them, you know, not to baptize them or something, but to be able to see something similar in those struggles as, as contradictory as it might seem. Yeah, actually, I really like that point a lot. You know, in uh, my more academic days when I was in Christian higher ed, uh, a phrase that would get thrown around a lot in, I don't know, tense moments maybe of disagreement would be that all truth is God's truth. And Mm -hmm. people usually meant that to um, somehow reconcile like particular scientific facts with fundamentalist readings of the Bible so that people would get less mad about them or something, right? Uh, but I think actually it makes a lot more sense to uh, use that type of phrase in, in this particular paradigm, right? Not about uh, science, but about the immortal science of Marxism, <laughs> <laughs> right? That even in liberation movements, even if they are like against the church, there's, some, there's a kernel of truth in them. Um, there's something revelatory about what the kingdom of God might look like uh, within them. Uh, you got to just look at it the right way, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, maybe one last quote here, and then we'll talk about St. Francis, but just to get the, the liberation theology part on the table some more. Um, Boff goes on to say, the big question that challenges Christians in every poor area is how to be true Christians, how to announce the joy of universal fraternity, because we're all children of the Heavenly Father in a world of wretches and exploited. We can only be so, in fact, if we live Christian faith in terms of human advancement and liberation. Faith essentially is not exhausted by these expressions, but it would not be a true faith nor the faith of Christ in the apostles if it did not include liberation from misery, meaning dehumanization and an offense to God himself. 
It has to do with a liberating evangelization, urging a Christian practice that implies also a transformation of society, helping to form a new humanity within socio-historical structures that result in greater fraternity. This fundamentally is what is proposed by liberation theology. Uh, you might want to pick on this or that phrase in that paragraph, but I think that is a, a great way of sum, summing up liberation theology, that there is not just not just that liberation struggles add something interesting to Christianity, but that if you really want to sort of think about how to evangelize or announce the joy of universal fraternity in a world of exploitation, then you actually kind of have to find a way to get into the conversation around human advancement and, and liberation. I think that is uh, also a really neat way to sort of um, create a space to then talk about somebody like St. Francis of Assisi, somebody who is also wandering through uh, an Italy where there are riches and exploited people and someone who's also interested in, in liberation in many different dimensions. I think that this particular language about universal fraternity ends up being a really big deal for this whole book for people who want to think about Francis and people who are thinking about liberation theology. And I think it's worth kind of pulling it out here at the beginning of this conversation because, um, okay, I mean, Francis fundamentally thinks, I mean, you can just kind of see it in the way that he talks, right? Everyone is a brother. Everyone is a sister. Everyone is a non-binary sibling. <laughs> um, Francis doesn't <laughs> think that necessarily, but I think that, so it's fine. Um, but it does, uh, there, there's a type of ethic in there that I think is really great. And uh and I like it, but also one that's very challenging in the sense that like it does it does draw tension between the Franciscan ethic and also liberation theology and, and Marxism because it's hard to have a universal fraternity or believe that there's a universal fraternity of all people uh, when also and also you believe in the class war or something. Right. I mean, there are ways to kind of make these ideas work together. And I think that actually there's a way that Francis kind of gives us some tools to think through that. But it's also just one of those tensions, I think, that's late in the conversation and fine. <laughs> we'll deal with it in a minute, maybe. But uh, I want <laughs> I want to make everyone aware this tension exists and you should be feeling it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a uh, maybe there's something about that, too, that manifests in in some of the religious orders. Like you get the Jesuits who are really committed to social justice. And maybe there's something about that because uh, all the way back to Ignatius, there's this really active component in the faith. You know, Ignatius himself was a, a soldier and he was very like invested in, in higher ed and learning, um, or at least the order became invested in it. Uh, and the same with uh, Dominic and the Dominicans, you know, there's this commitment to learn as much as you can and then sort of spread the word of God in this this way that for liberation theology or Dominican liberation theologians ended up being like, they're all really into reading Karl Marx, right? Like, <laughs> or you get the same with like Herbert McCabe, you know, there's something kind of baked into that religious tradition. You don't get the same thing in the Franciscans. There are other Franciscans who are uh, in the mix in liberation theology, for sure. The order itself is uh, found in a lot of struggles. And uh, I always think of a guy named uh, Uriel Molina, who was a, a Franciscan in Nicaragua and a Sandinista, a really important uh, base community leader in, in Managua. Um, so you had like Ernesto Cardinal. He was out doing the rural stuff in Salentaname. Molina was like the cardinal of the, the cities, the urban cardinal, you could say. Um, he was a Franciscan, but eventually also had to leave the order over tensions within the order and, and the revolution and everything. But there is something about Francis that makes him an ambivalent character when it comes to social revolution, right? Like, we'll probably talk about this some more, but 
Um, because he's a peacemaker, you don't get the same sort of, I don't know, like prophetic, uh, <laughs> prophetic indignation that you might get with a Dominican or a Jesuit. Um, I mean, Leonardo Boff obviously finds it. He has a real prophetic indignation, but it's maybe harder to find or, or Boff has to like, uh, maybe do some extra work to like discover that peace because Francis is such a like <laughs> peaceful, humble guy, you know, <laughs> not conflict averse, but yeah. not, uh, not, not committed to conflict in the same way. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think that there, there's definitely a way towards that prophetic, liber- uh, that prophetic voice within the Franciscan way of thinking, but it takes a few extra steps to get there, but we'll, let's, let's, uh, let's bracket that off for, for now. So uh, before we get there, let's talk about the type of church and sort of like situation that Francis kind of comes to be in. I think that's an important part of the story. Uh, Francis is born into a world that is, you know, pre-capitalist, more or less. Uh, But Boff notes that during Francis's life, a lot of things are changing rapidly and Christianity is changing along with it. So this is from Boff that I think kind of helps explain what's happening. What can a church immersed in power and preoccupied with maintaining dominion over the world say to a new Christendom? Born of the villages and merchant activity, practically nothing. There's a vacuum of official leadership because until then, the Christian religion was feudal and not bourgeois, rural and not urban. It would have been necessary to have an evangelization of the people that was based on the witness of poverty and that had gospel roots, and not in the reiteration of common doctrine elaborated by imperial religious power. Only thus would a minimum of credibility be safeguarded and a fitting religious meaning be developed for the situation. So Francis is like an interesting character because uh, there's a sort of like transformation going on, right? Uh, of like rural to urban and uh, that that whole type of thing from from like a, a feudal society towards a more bourgeois society, right? The the birth of a type of capitalism and like merchant activity and stuff, right? We could get into the like economics of the whole situation, but like let's not for a hot minute. <laughs> <laughs> the, the important piece here that Boff is trying to draw out, though, is that 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 particular type of church in this moment, like it has nothing to really really to say to like the the urban poor, uh, to the to the growing sort of proletarianized classes, and uh, Francis is like not of the church that is um, that is he's not of like that feudal church, right? There's something else that he's doing. Uh, Francis's religious vocation is that of like a layperson, though he, you know, later becomes a deacon. Uh, I think, like we talked about already, but Francis's practice of Christianity and emphasis on liberty and fraternity shared in a particular moment of many other movements within Christianity at the time that people found like really compelling. So there are people like the Waldensians or the Brethren of the Free Spirit. All religious organizations that um, the the Waldensians and the Brethren of the Free Spirit and, and a whole bunch of others that sort of fall in this category of like free spirit that that's like the maybe grouping they're all really anti-clerical and uh, kind of anti-Catholic Church but but religious in a different way <laughs> but Francis is kind of associated with those types of things because of the emphasis on fraternity and the emphasis on liberty, but he's not anti-clerical in the way the others were, problematically so sometimes. Um, so that's like kind of situating Francis within this larger conversation that he's he's involved in this like, you know, being being and bearing witness to the uh, the proletarianization of um, of workers, of people, the transformation of society towards a capitalist economy. And, like, trying to figure out what it means to be, like, authentically Christian, uh, just like the quote that uh, Dean read from Boff earlier, like, what does it mean to be a, 
a poor person and trying to live out Christianity. That's what Francis is trying to do during this particular, you know, moment of transition. Um, and that's why he ends up looking, you know, so different than I think other uh, particular characters uh, within the, uh, the, the story of the church. Right. You have on St. Francis's one side, the, the church hierarchy, which represents this, uh, outgoing social order and Boff even sometimes does his own kind of gloss on the Gramsci line that the you know the old is dying and the new is struggling to be born and there's all kinds of stuff that happens in between um, and uh, so you have the church on the one side with this outgoing feudal order and then you have on the other side a, a bourgeois class which Francis is, is from right his dad is super rich and Francis renounces his wealth um, and then maybe on like <laughs> another side a third side if you will um, there is, uh, these kind of radical currents, like Matt's talking about these more, uh, millenarian or mystical utopian currents that are definitely outside the church. Um, and Francis is such an interesting guy because he's like, uh, trying to sort of do something different from all three of these, these parties and also is sort of related to them in complicated ways. And what I like about Boff's uh, examination of Francis's context is Boff says, all right, I'm a liberation theologian. I'm really interested in systemic change, systemic critique, and so on. But he says that kind of mindset wouldn't have been available to St. Francis. And sometimes St. Francis gets painted as a, uh, a reformist character or like a I don't know. He's not the true radical in the way the Waldensians were the real radicals and Francis is a, a compromise. And we've talked about that a bunch on the show as well in the past. Um, that's kind of the Marxist reading, too. But Boff says just because he doesn't have that same radicalism and doesn't maybe have the same systemic language, it doesn't mean that he's not a, a, a radical in his own right. So here's how he puts it. Um, we ought to point out that Francis was a great revolutionary, not a mere reformer. The reformer continues to be an agent of the system reproducing it by means of the correction of abuses and the introduction of reforms. In an analytical sense, revolutionary means a creative fantasy to plan and to live something not yet shown. Extremely funny, by the way, to say that's the analytical sense of the term uh, revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> not not uh, I would guess, but okay. <laughs> Francis, revolutionary, began to walk his own path. He himself confesses in his testament, no one showed me what I should do. But what he does represents, on the one hand, a radical criticism of the dominant forces of the time, and on the other, a strong response to the demands of the situation. So what you get in Francis is a, a kind of performative uh, critique. And Boff goes on to say, seen from the point of view of a system that defines what is possible and what is not, what is sensible and what is not, the path of Francis seems like foolishness. And Francis, of course, famously embraces that, right? He's supposed to be a fool. So there's something about that that's really compelling. And in particular, it's a new way of living together for Boff. That's the the innovation of Francis, the revolutionary moment. It's not like Francis is just a weirdo and that's like the, the thing that the system can't contain. It's an affirmation of a certain kind of community bound together in poverty, giving itself over to the world in this this different way. Um, or giving itself over to the poor of the world and, and to creation. And I think that there's something to it. Like, it, it is tempting to read St. Francis as the the compromise candidate of medieval radicals or whatever, the guy who gets sucked back into the church machine and then, you know, his order becomes full of people who also kind of betray that vision. 
But uh, I think I'm sold. Boff has sold me. Francis is more revolutionary than people tend to think. And it is all sort of uh, premised on on that community, uh, that that vision of universal fraternity. I agree. You know, the Valdensians and the free spirit folks, they're interesting for sure. And it's like they're interesting people to learn about, but also really problematic (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, Go go read about them. I don't know. It's a wild, wild trip for sure. Um, I think though, okay, so, you know, there's this way that Francis is, like you're saying, Dean, like kind of giving himself over to the poor of the world. And, and, um, there's a, there's a way that Francis negotiates power that is really important to understand and to figure out exactly what he's kind of doing in that and like why the poverty, uh, part is so important and, and how that relates to how he thinks about liberation and what it means to be a free person. So this is another quote from this part kind of explaining Francis. Um, and I think it's it's a, a little bit long, but it's worth kind of figuring out. Um, so this is Boff, again, kind of talking about liberation and uh, what freedom means for Francis. Uh, he says that he is presented as a man liberated from the ties of the different systems. This consciousness is manifested in the dispute with his father, who went to the consuls of Assisi to force Francis to return the money that he had distributed among the poor. They asked him to appear before them, and Francis answers, By the grace of God, I'm free, and I'm not obligated to obey the consuls, because I am a servant of the Most High God. It's like, that's my favorite country song, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I love the... Uh, this is like this is great, though. I love this uh, this uh, rationale. Like, Sorry, um, I, I serve God, and I don't have to do what you say. It's extremely funny. <laughs> that's like me when I was 17, and uh, <laughs> I've grown out of it, maybe in a bad way. Uh, the consul said to the father, seeing that your son is in service of God, it's not up for us to judge him. <laughs> Come on. A real weak-willed consul. Come on. I don't think that's okay. You guys got to fight a little bit harder than that. All right. So finally, it says, uh, this is Boff's concluding kind of point of the story. This way out from power is a form of liberation for Francis. So in rejecting, like, in rejecting material and rejecting power and rejecting like his like sort of inheritance and giving it to the poor, there's like a type of foolishness, right? This is the, the, where the St. Francis talks about himself as, right? He's this, uh, he's a new fool in the world that that's what God wants him to be like. But it's, uh, it is a type of foolishness and it is a type of like, you know, personal ethic that I think is like in line with the gospel in a particular hermeneutic way of reading. And I'm, and I like it, but it's also like, it's saying, like, I don't want power. And, like, that in itself is liberating. And it's, like, that stepping back from the whole system and, like, a ways that things work is, that's that's the moment of liberation. Of is, is Francis saying, like, I'm not doing this thing that you want me to do. And I'm just, sorry, I'm a free person. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's very, it's very hard to get your mind around i think in some ways because it's like you know um saying that you (laughs) saying that you don't want power is like doesn't feel like liberating uh necessarily but uh i I think that there's a particular way of spinning this that it makes sense yeah i mean it's it's what gets somebody like a Giorgio agamben everybody's favorite problem problematic italian philosopher (laughs) um it's what makes him so invested in the franciscans and saint francis in particular that there's this St. Francis is like becoming ungovernable, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't, uh, you can't govern me by worldly authorities. Cause actually I follow the, the deeper logic of creation, you know, the, the rule by God and God alone. 
And there is something about that that's really empowering. It's the the willingness to suspend all those other systems, all those other other uh, forms of, of governance that are kind of swirling around. And I think that there is something really compelling about it. You know, it's it's tough to find the systemic link. Um, and uh, it's important too to contextualize it in the life of community because the goal is not to become like a you know a rogue radical individual, but to really commit to a, a community of, of free people. Um, but there's something about it that does feel really you know liberating, right? Like uh, when when the consul when your dad sues you to be like, I don't actually like that you gave all this money to the poor, and then you're just like, sorry, dad, like I don't know what to tell you. That's just what I'm supposed to do because God <laughs> told me to do it. Um, there, that is like a, a sign of true freedom, right? He's not bound by the law of uh, of the land, but also not even bound by the law of, of his dad. Exactly. Not not bound by dad law. Um, that's true freedom. Yeah. You know, I think it's great. <laughs> I often. So my son, he's a little he's little he's eight. And sometimes, you know, uh, people will tease him or whatever. Something that will happen at school. And I always tell him, like, you know, like the thing that you need to do is show people that, like, you don't play by their rules and you don't care what they say. And sort of this like sense of like rejecting the whole system of being teased in the play- playground as a concept, and then like then you can't be teased, right? And it's exactly the same thing that's going on here. Um, Francis's dad's mad at him because he's giving all this money away, but Francis is just like, "Sorry, I don't, I don't do any of this. No thanks. <laughs> you can't make me." <laughs> Some real Franciscan parenting. So when he's being teased on the playground, uh, he can just be like, "I'm well, sorry, I only serve uh, the true God, and that God doesn't care about your uh, extremely weird eight-year-old social rules." Well, okay. I mean, first of all, that, but also, if you're being bullied by people, you should go tell the teacher, and that's really important. But, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like in in this like sort of metaphor, though, t- the teacher is God, and like you play by the teacher's rules, not by the kids. And okay. <laughs> The metaphor is really falling apart. Uh, I'm sorry I added even one more layer to it. Um, <laughs> let's go to uh, the other thing Buff does say, though, about that community. Um, so the key, like I said, is not that Francis finds his own internal liberation, but that he establishes a, a community that is uh, that is equal, a kind of radical equality, as Boff puts it. And he goes through a bunch of kind of quotes from Francis talking about the way that power gets inverted in, in the community Um, But the real key is that you only really find your power within the fraternity, the Franciscan fraternity, by giving up your power, by working with others, by trying to make yourself a a servant to the people around you. And uh, the way Boff describes it is Francis is revolutionizing these different relationships. And uh, he also adds that it's not just an internal kind of thing, but the internal relationship of equality allows the Franciscans to also be outwardly uh, present. So he says the fraternity opens outward. When they go out into the world, the brothers are to behave evangelically, living poorly, proclaiming peace, eating what is placed before them, avoiding any form of violence, giving whatever is asked of them. Right. It's the kind of thing that is like a truly free way of life. And when I read that, I actually couldn't help but think of like uh, the kind of thing that Nietzsche even is talking about in a, a different way. I mean, Nietzsche would probably hate St. Francis, but because sure. uh, St. Francis is all about being little and humble and uh, a loser on purpose. Um, but there is something there that like Nietzsche's whole thing is that the truly free person doesn't really need anybody uh, or doesn't really need anything because they're sort of at home with themselves and in the world. 
And in Francis, you get, I guess, this kind of like, you know, inner strength that is somewhat similar to that. But it's the kind of thing that is premised on the the fact that you are committed to the fraternity, that you're committed to to the others in such a way that you can then individually kind of live without grasping. You know, you can release your debts. You can sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, forget whatever is like clinging to you because that's your your true, true strength is found in, in that community of peace. And I think there's something really... Uh, I don't know, really energizing and, and challenging about that way of life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, right before that quote that you read, too, there's another part that I thought was that was really interesting. Um, you know, earlier on, I was talking about the tensions between, like, the Franciscan ethic and also, like, the idea of class war or something. <laughs> and I feel like you see some of that tension here um, in, in an interesting way. So, uh, Boff, he's kind of quoting uh, Francis writes, in the rifts and failures of community, the medicine is always the spirit of fraternity. And then this is the quote from Francis. So do not worry or fret about the sin or bad example of others, admonishing him, instructing him, and correcting him humbly and diligently, as best befits them according to God. I guess that the the tension here I see is that, like, you know, um, when, you're, when your boss is exploiting you or whatever, uh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> don't worry or fret about that, but uh, that's the tension. But you know, there's a there's there's a step beyond this though, where like um, instructing him, correcting him humbly and diligently, <laughs> maybe is like the uh, is a very uh, a very weak way of being indignantly prophetic or something. But um, anyways, yeah. you know. But I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there's like there is like a a perceived tension between uh, class struggle and um, like like you know like that would happen in your workplace in any given day, and um, and the Franciscan way of thinking about the world. But also, I think that there is like, uh, you know, there's a different type of comportment that you that you might carry were you doing class <laughs> class struggle from this like Franciscan sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about even the bourgeoisie as as your brothers, unfortunately, <laughs> your brothers and sisters and mm-hmm. non, non-binary si- uh, siblings. Uh, that's what they are to you. And uh, you're trying to correct them in one way or another. But whether or not they'll listen is a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe that's kind of where I found the most use in in Boff's presentation of Francis as well is it's just like in in McCabe's essay on the class struggle in Christian love. He has that great passage where he says the Sermon on the Mount should make you a good comrade, right? It makes you a reliable person in the struggle. And there's something about Franciscan spirituality that's that way, too, right? There's a it's like a St. Francis's great combat liberalism piece. You know, you should uh, be at peace with everybody and be willing to uh, humbly correct your the person in your fraternity. But there's something bigger than that, too. There's this kind of uh, fundamental faith that at the end of the day, even if you are alienated from somebody via something like a class war or in Francis's day, a literal war, right? Like he was also in a time of lots of violence. Um, that you should still see that particular person or even that group as uh, fundamentally your responsibility. And I think there's something about that that's pretty, pretty compelling. Um, There's a great story in here that Boff tells about uh, a situation where there were these these robbers and thieves and they were like coming down and stealing stuff. And Francis's advice uh, was to first like go out to where the robbers are and uh bring like some bread and wine and be like hey you robbers come on down we brought you some bread and wine we don't really want anything from you You can just have this for free and then give it to them and just like let them go on their way and just tell them hey next time you rob somebody just like don't hurt them how about that and then uh the next day come back and uh bring like maybe some nicer stuff even some better wine or whatever 
and just be super nice and friendly to them and like let it go on their way. And the key is Francis says basically don't judge them because like they're probably robbing for some some particularly good reason, right? Maybe that's like the seed of the uh, <laughs> the the social theory of crime or something that you get in uh, in St. <laughs> Francis. Um, and then finally, you know, you go back. They go back a third time. And uh, again, through that kind of kindness and meekness, they're having this exchange. And Francis is like, who knows? Maybe even one of them will be Franciscan. But the whole point is actually not to get them to, like, stop robbing people. And I think that is, like, really interesting. You know, like, on the one hand, they're your enemies. They could rob you. And wouldn't that be bad? Uh, or they're robbing other people. And isn't that bad? But for St. Francis, there's also a sort of affirmation that even the robbers have some kind of humanity. And the key is to be, like, creative enough to sort of find the way of pulling somebody over on your side. And Boff goes out of his way to say that it's not like a third way politics. It's not like, oh, there's uh, the ruling class on the one hand and the revolutionaries on the other. And like, we just have to find the liberal way out of the situation. It's on the contrary. It's like, what's the kind of revolutionary means by which we would build a, a truly fraternal society and not see anybody as like extraneous to it. And it's the kind of thing that you maybe see systematized in the Sandinista revolution, you know, where they're like trying to find ways of uh, rehabilitating um, even Somoza guards and so on. Right. They abolish the death penalty immediately. And it's because of that commitment to a, a certain Christian element in the revolution that says nobody is beyond repair. Um, and I think there's there's something about that that's like important to to say in the right way <laughs> so that it doesn't get construed as being like, we just accept the bad boss, but it's like, yeah, yeah you might go on strike. Um, but also you hope that your boss like has a change of heart for his or her own good in the end. Yeah, I think so. I, I was thinking a lot about the, that particular passage or like that, that outwardly open kind of comportment um, in terms of the ongoing culture war and how I experienced that in my own life. And, you know, there is, like you mentioned, not to, like, liberal the, the whole problem away in the sense of being like, well, you know, everyone's just a human person that, that you know, should be treated, treated with dignity or whatever. But, like, how can... I, I guess what's what's interesting about this is that there, the, the particular ethic that Francis gives us is to be, like, so open to other people that, like, you know, your a relationship with them could change the way that they are and, you know, could change the way that you are too. And that is pretty different, I think. And and maybe actually might get us somewhere if we invested in that particular way of thinking. Um, especially with people who don't agree with us politically. I don't know. How do we be open with them? And like, how do we kind of believe that we do have some type of fraternity with them, even though they like hate our guts or something? It is, uh, it's a real spiritual practice I don't fully understand, but is definitely something I'm interested in interrogating in my own life because I feel like... <laughs> Again, I, I, I hate to be like a, uh, oh, the divisions are growing so deep between these two political camps. <laughs> the divisions are growing pretty deep between these two political camps, and they're both wrong. And, like, that there might be something really worth thinking about with this uh, particular type of openness that uh, that people haven't really done or don't understand how to do. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, like, I mean, there's so much more to say about it, but... Uh, Obviously, being nice to people is not going to change the system of global capitalism. And right. It's really important to say that like uh, that is real. But also, like, I think just for your own spiritual health, you have to find a way to, like, be nice to people. You know what I mean? Like, it can really eat you alive. Like, uh, I always think that there's this line in a poem by Bertolt Brecht. Um, the poem is, like, translated in a bunch of different ways. It's sometimes uh, to those who come after 
But there's a line where he says he's like calling on future generations to kind of look back on the past with some some empathy or understanding or forgiveness or grace. And he says, uh, uh, those of us who wish to create a gentle world couldn't be gentle. Um, and it's this, and it's not said with any pride. It's like, you know, to commit ourselves to the struggle, it hardens you over time. And there's something about that that's really rough. And uh, Boff, even in this book, says, uh, he quotes Che Guevara, I think in the beginning of the book, yeah. um, as saying, uh, uh, you have to, um, you have to be hard, but you also have to, like, keep yourself soft, you know, <laughs> there's this, like, or not lose your softness. Um, and I think that's what he's getting at here, that for your own spiritual good, you have to sort of, you know, not let your not let the struggle, like, turn you into a, a stone gargoyle or whatever, um, even though, you know, you know that just being nice isn't going to bring down the boss. Right. It's true. Um, being nice won't bring down the boss. But if you do, like, you know, if you take the gospel really seriously in the way that Francis is doing it, right, and you believe in this this whole idea of fraternity, that there is, like, this connection between people, that we're all brothers and siblings. I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to try to stop using the gendered language, and I'll <laughs> say siblings. That we're all related in this, like, crazy, wacky way, right? That, like, if, if you... if if you really were to think about somebody in that type, that type of like relationality, like, you know, you would stop and like give them the time of day and, and maybe talk it through with them or something. Right. In ways that like people are just like not really used to, I think in, in these trying times, like, <laughs> you know, if your, if your sibling was wrong about something or had a really toxic belief or was exploiting somebody in a, you know, an awful systemic way, like, what you would do as their sibling is probably tell them about it, right? Like, I don't know, harboring a, a quiet resentment is not like a real way to treat someone who you have a fraternity with. So I don't know. I think it's a, it's a challenging but helpful way of thinking about things. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll start trying it. <laughs> probably not very good at it. But, yeah, um, our Twitter uh, doesn't really reflect these values, but maybe later. <laughs> Maybe um, later. the Franciscan ethic of being a reply guys to be just to start telling people we really don't like just, you know, just p- peace to you. Like, good luck with this. Uh, <laughs> hoping the best for you um, that maybe you'll come around someday. I, I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Kill him with kindness. Um, there's a, a lot more to say about it. Um, and fraternity for Francis, as Boff puts it, is extended even on a cosmic scale, which I think is really cool. We talked about his idea of cosmic democracy, Boff's idea, uh, a long time ago on the Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor episode. So you get that here, too. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the way he looks at Francis and kind of the seeds of that systemic change as well or systemic perspective. Um, he has a really interesting bit where he says, one of the global values lived by Francis, together with poverty and minority, is peace. He does not go naively through the world. He knows that it is the regio dissimilitudinous whatever that means and that behind the dissimilarities are camouflaged injustices and violence especially property maintains strict ties with violence or the loss of inner peace and tranquility bishop guido judged it opportune to advise francis about the hardness of his life because of the denial of any kinds of goods francis responded realistically lord if we had goods we would need arms to defend them and from there arise arguments contentions that in many ways impede the love of god and neighbor because of this, we do not want to have anything of our own in this world. And I think that is great as well, right? Maybe it's a counterpoint to what we were just saying, or like a, a good counterbalance, at least, to that, right? That Francis isn't just sort of 
um, doing the the nice stuff. He's also committed to a certain way of life because he sees the links between ownership and defensive ownership, right? This is like calling into question the whole ground of capitalist civilization. It's making a link between property and violence. Uh, it's, you know, the recognition that <laughs> the cops are there to protect somebody's store, not to protect uh, the people who are are living in a particular neighborhood. So I think that is also a, a good sort of way to draw out some of that systemic stuff that's happening in St. Francis. No, I think that's good. And, and that kind of gets to the heart of like the idea of freedom again in Francis. Like I'm not willing to play by these rules. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. And that's <laughs> um, the, the Bishop is right that there's a type of hardness of, of that type of life, but undeniably it is definitely free from all of the worst stuff in the world. And that's something pretty <laughs> cool. Um, okay, so there's that. There's this emphasis on peace that I think is really important. Dean, you mentioned this thing with the uh, the thieves a minute ago. Um, that's in a section of the book called The Liberating Strategy of Francis, and it's great. This uh, this great passage, this great story about the thieves. But let's talk about another great story to kind of round out this conversation about Francis, and that is uh, The Wolf of Gubbio. Maybe that's not how you say that word. I don't know anything about Italian, even a little bit. You got to say it the way that Mario would say it. Now, I think you're setting me up to do racism on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm setting you up to do a Chris Prattism. Okay. That might be okay. I'm still not going to do it, though, uh, for fear of being canceled uh, by unfraternal people in the world. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> there's, a, there's a particular, like, um, legend, a myth, uh, a story about Francis called the Wolf of Gubbio. Um, and this is what Both has to say. I'm going to read this, this longer passage, and I think it's interesting, though. So in this particular story, there is a wolf that is, like, harassing this town, Gubbio. <laughs> you know it. It's in Italy. <laughs> and uh, the people are, are uh, trying to figure out, like, what to do about this wolf. It's a big, bad wolf. It's blowing your house down. And they're like, please, Francis, come fix this wolf situation for us. Um, and Francis finds a way to negotiate with the wolf. Uh, in a fraternal way to like sort of stop, stop the harassment. But there's a, a bit more going on in the story here than, than just that particular reading. Right. I, I think on one hand, this like this myth or this like legend it operates in a way to like demonstrate Francis's like sort of like uh, fraternity with nature and sort of closeness to, to nature. It, even, even to the extent that like Francis could, could talk down a wolf from like harassing a town. Right. But there's something more going on here. Uh, Boff wants us to realize if we look closely, it's not an evil wolf on the one hand and good people on the other. What happens in truth is the use of the wild wolf, great, big, terrible, and ferocious, as the legend paints him. And the other wolf of the city, armed and fearful. In other words, the legend deals with two actors who confront one another and whose only relationship is one of violence and mutual destruction. What's Francis's strategy? His perspective is not to force a truce a type of balance of strengths inspired by fear. Nor is a strategy one of taking sides. He knows how to avoid... Okay, this is an unfortunate bit of Christian suprematism and, like, maybe anti-Semitic language. He, uh, Boff says, talking about Francis, knows how to avoid Phariseeism, easily detectable in situations of conflict in which each social agent thinks more or less in the following manner. The evil ones are the others, not I, and so they must be destroyed. People don't question their own position for fear of discovering the evil wolf within themselves, living together in this tension with the good. So Francis's path here is something that's different that is, than like, you know, the uh, 
like the strict sort of like I'm a good guy, you're a bad guy sense, right? There's a there's a negotiation that they're um the it's not just the wolf that is the problem, but it's also the town that is the problem. And that is particularly interesting, right? It's it's not again stressing this extremely uh, pointedly. It's not that like there's a third way. It's not this like th- that type of thinking, but it's that there's a way to negotiate peace between those two things because um, uh, they are they are both both opposed in particular ways, right? There's a way to like sublimate that tension um, that that Francis sees, right? It's about not understanding just like the city is good and the wolf is bad, but they're both two wolves, right? They're two wolves to, you know, <laughs> after two different things, you know, the, the, the wolf itself is like harassing the townspeople and eating their sheep or whatever, but the town itself is expanding and stretching out and taking the wolf's territory. And um, these things are both intention. So I think that that's a, an interesting way to kind of parse out the way that, Francis is a liberating type of character, but also the way that Francis thinks about peace in this like expansive cosmic democracy sort of sense. Yeah, I like uh, Boff goes on to say, too, that uh, the liberating challenge is to make new persons from the two types of wolves, which I think is a great way of of putting it. And uh, at the end, he says that he converts the wolf into brother wolf, a new being, right? There's like a, an affirmation of a totally different relationship there between the wolf and the city. And I think that's also a helpful way to avoid the sort of two wolves. And I don't know, this is kind of a weird connection, but I guess it makes me it made me sort of think through the utility of something like Marxism as well, because you only get to see the city as a wolf if you kind of understand the structural problems yeah. uh, at issue, you know? And that's what Marxism does as well. It sort of says, well, you might think that this person of a different social group is your enemy. But in fact, if you understand that you're both part of the same working class, you're both being oppressed by the same boss, it can help you build some solidarity with one another. You know, it's it's the recognition of the class struggle that doesn't do away with all the other differences, but allows you to sort of enter into a different liberating relationship with uh, with somebody else to try to get something else done. Um, it makes peace, right? As between people in the working class, or at least it should. It, it doesn't always, but <laughs> it should uh, make peace uh, such that you can actually find a, a liberating solution and and get justice. So maybe a bit of a stretch, but it just sort of made me think like, what is what is the unique thing that Francis is perceiving? And it's that sort of deeper, a, a deeper logic of violence underneath, right? A deeper sort of reality beyond just like basic enemies. And that's the the true success of peace is to discern what that is and then address it at the root. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that starts to show you some of the resonance between Francis and liberation theology and in, in like how they work together. That like, you know, liberation theology is interested in taking up these systemic types of conversations around evil and sin in the world and like that's cool right it does it through sort of it does it through marxist analysis but francis is able to kind of get you know not to the same place obviously because francis is not like you know a social thinker necessarily but uh because of the ways that francis thinks of the world in a more like flat way or a more like um you know with more equality among actors He's able to do these types of like reversals of perspective that he can see from the perspective of the wolf. The city is also the wolf, right? So that type of like that type of equality 
thinking, <laughs> equality of action thinking in Francis is what I think lends it towards liberation theology and what lends it towards, I think, ultimately like a type of like Marxist Christianity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Boff goes on to say a little bit later, just kind of as we're rounding out this conversation, get to the end of the hour here. Uh, true liberty is realized when an individual has decided to live with all creatures independent of their situation, serving them courteously, even the animals as Francis wanted. Because of the freedom that he achieved for himself, St. Francis encourages all the true processes of liberation that search by means of solidarity action to create and to widen the arena of liberty. And I think that's the key, right, is to to widen that arena of, of freedom uh, and to widen it even to your enemies, that the goal is to, you know, you, you want to win, obviously, but the goal is not really the defeat of your enemies. The goal is a... Uh, a situation where as many people as possible can live in a truly free and healthy yeah. and good relationship, which which doesn't preclude real struggle. I mean, as Boff himself was uh, willing to to affirm, right, affirming all kinds of different uh, struggles that, like, unfortunately, were violent in Latin America. Uh, but it does mean sort of a desire to uh, to get to a horizon that is peaceful for as many people as possible by the time you get there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's it's not about winning a struggle. It's about, be- like, I don't know, like the story, like, it's about becoming new types of people, right? About um, people who understand one another better or who share some type of fraternity that they didn't before. That's w- winning is like, <laughs> the winning move is to, like, make sure you don't have to play the game at all, <laughs> I guess, for Francis, right? <laughs> yeah. Sidestepping at all. Cool. Well, the conclusion yeah. then of this chapter is just kind of some rearticulation, but I think it's worth uh, getting out there. So Boff says that the gospel seriousness of Francis is surrounded by lightheartedness and enchantment because it's profoundly imbued with joy, refinement, courtesy, and humor. There's in him an invincible confidence in humanity and in the merciful goodness of the Father. As a result, he exercises all fears and threats. His faith does not alienate him from the world, nor does it lead him to a pure valley of tears. On the contrary, it transforms him through gentleness and care in land and home for the fraternal encounter where persons do not appear as children of necessity, but of children as joy, which is a Gaston Bacalard quote. Loves some Bacalard. He's a great guy. Well, I don't know if he's a great guy, but he wrote a book that I do like. Okay, anyways, and then Boff finishes it out saying, we can dance in the world because it's the theater of the glory of God and of his children. Francis of Assisi, more than an idea, is a spirit and a way of life. The spirit and way of life are only made manifest in practice, not in a formula, idea, or ideal. Everything in Francis invites practice, leaving the imperial system in an alternative act that makes real more devotion toward others, more gentleness with the poor, and greater respect for nature. So uh, we've we've gotten here to the conclusion, Dean, of this chapter in this book. Um, Do you think that Leonardo Boff is right? Is St. Francis the guy for liberation theology? (laughs) Well, you could do a lot worse. And like I said, uh, the Dominicans didn't write a book about Dominic. The Jesuits (laughs) didn't write a book about Ignatius. So, so far, Francis is the winner by default. Uh, But, you know, for all the kind of gaps aside, and I think... Maybe if there's one error of this past hour of conversation, maybe we've just tried really hard to uh, to build bridges that maybe are maybe can't sustain the weight of uh, of analogy that Boff has kind of tried to place here. But I do think that at the end, right, Francis is more than an idea. Um, Francis of Assisi is a spirit and a way of life. And 
that is that that sort of uh, cosmic fraternity, right, with everybody. That does seem like the goal to which liberation theologians are striving, even if they don't seem very Franciscan or even if they seem a little more fiery or, uh, you know, um, a little more crabby or cantankerous as some of them can be. Uh, the end goal is still the kind of peace that Francis is is after. And I don't know. Sure, I'll take it. Francis, he's a great saint for liberation theology. Why not? I don't know. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I think he's a, um, you know, okay, this is how I feel. Liberation theology, sometimes we come to this conclusion on the podcast that like in a lot of ways, it ends up being more radical than Marxism because it like thinks that you have to become a new type of person and that like all people have to become some kind of new type of person, right? It, it, different than like the dictatorship of the proletariat or whatever, <laughs> more <laughs> more expansive and like deep reaching. And I think that this is also, I think, in that same vein or it, it gives me that same feeling, right? That like Marxism is... um is a great idea. It's a great social philosophy. Uh, workers should own the means of production. We love it, of course. And liberation theology is speaking towards like uh, a type of character in people that is really difficult to cultivate. And Francis is giving you something that's even harder, I think, than that, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, do you want to really be invested in becoming a new person? Well, here's at least one way that I, <laughs> one wild guy thought about it in, uh, in like the, f- the 1500s or whatever. And, uh, you have to think of like all things as your your sibling in this very serious way. And uh, I think it lends itself to liberation theology in, and like you said, maybe it falls apart in some places and that's okay. But it is, uh, it offers like something very difficult, but I think um, maybe spiritually useful in life that I think is, is worth considering. Yeah, so there you have it. Uh, the next time you're really mad at somebody, you can say the prayer of St. Francis. And uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go on strike, but it means you should, uh, you know, don't let that that hatred eat you alive. Uh, try to come up with some great miraculous solution. And uh, that solution will probably be do still go on strike. But uh, and then get, also get your boss know. to go on strike with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get everybody on strike. Let's get the whole world on strike. And then uh, when everybody's not working, we can finally really see each other outside the law. And we can say, Dad, too bad. Uh, I'm a citizen of God and I'm not going to listen to what your lawyers have to say. And we'll finally live in the big uh, world commune that St. Francis was dreaming of. Can you imagine showing up to work, though, and you're like, you're like extremely late and your boss is like, I'm sorry, you're not getting paid today. And it's like, sorry, I live outside the law. <laughs> I live outside the law. I only listen to God and I'm on time, I think. You know, the worst part is uh, if that boss had any religious literacy, they'd be like, well, then you'll be glad to know that St. Francis also didn't allow his followers to have any money. So goodbye. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. A dollar or more, maybe two dollars. I can't remember which it is. You can join the Magnificast um, Discord channel and you're going to love it being in there talking to people learn about them. It's great. You'll learn a whole bunch of things about people you've never met before. And, and what more could you really want? Um, hey, also, here's a fun thing. There are uh, two new pieces of Magnificast merchandise on our Redbubble store that you can go buy or not. I don't care if you buy them. I made them regardless of you buying them. So 
<laughs> so you just do what you want with that information. Um, maybe you can buy a sticker. Maybe you can buy a button. Maybe you can buy a T-shirt. Or maybe you could do none of those things and just live your life as a regular person. And that's fine and great without any T-shirts. Um, listen, St. Francis, he didn't have one of our T-shirts, and I think he was pretty great. So maybe you don't need one. Uh, <laughs> actually talking you out of it at this point. All right. Um, our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by Theological Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have